0: Right. we're in Amos chapter 1 and we're and it says the words of Amos who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah king of Judah in the days of Jeroboam the son of Joash king of Israel 2 years before the earthquake the earthquake context here is we just finished First and Second Kings and 1 and Second Samuel before that. We could go straight into 1 and Second Chronicles, but we just got done doing a lot of that. So we're going to break it up just a little bit and cover the northern prophets. Well, there's five northern prophets. There is Elijah, who was Ahab. The prophets started showing up during Ahab's reign. The worse the king, the better the prophets. So Ahab, Ahaziah, Joram, the record of Elijah's, we just got done doing in, in Kings. And then you get Elisha that goes to the northern kingdom, Joram, Jehu, Jehuaz. and that record is also in Kings. And then in between Elisha, the successor to Elisha is a guy named Jonah. He got his own book. So at some point, I think the scribes started saying, we need to just give these prophets their own books. And so the record of Jonah we did on one of our retreats. It's in the podcast history. You can go to the podcast. You can listen to Jonah. And then we got two more. And the next one is Amos, which is what we're doing tonight. And then after this kind of short book, we're going to go do Hosea. And then we'll dig back into Chronicles and take a fresh start at it. We're just going to take a little break from the sequential Bible. And we're going to kind of cover those things. So those are the five prophets that warned the northern kingdom that judgment was coming. And those prophets were an annoyance to the kings that didn't want to hear from them. And they were an amazing blessing to the kings that did listen to them. Uh, But Amos uh, is largely uh, showing up here um, after Jonah, uh, but before Hosea. And he is coming during the reign of Jeroboam II. And so this is 16 years of silence from God. There's the divided kingdoms. And they haven't heard much from the Lord. They haven't wanted to hear much from the Lord. And so Jeroboam shows up, 2 Kings 14, 24, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So we know that Jeroboam II was not a good king. Uh, He he strayed from the will of God in a lot of ways. But we also know from history that he was a competent king. And there was a lot of success during Jeroboam II's reign. They were very wealthy. They were prosperous. What had happened was um, Syria had been a harassment to the northern kingdom for a long time, but Assyria was rising in the north, subdued Syria, so the northern kingdom of Israel just kind of gets a break from being attacked. They keep their own money, they get to keep their own crops, prosperity happens. This is when Amos shows up. His name Amos in the Hebrew means burden, and he comes up, he's just got a burden he has to share, and that they just name him burden. And we're going to see why in a second. Um, it's descriptive of the book. This book is a sheep breeder unloading what the Lord is telling him. Um, some people argue and and or some people argue and some people say do not confuse with. But he shows up during the days of Uzziah and Isaiah 1-1 says, this is the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos with a Z. Uh, which was concerning Judah and the Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah. Some people would say, don't confuse the two. Amos and Amos are not the same person. However, they both show up during the days of Uzziah. Uh, Isaiah's ministry starts is to five different kings, and it ends with Uzziah. Um, So Amos is the same king, same era, and it makes a heck of a lot of sense that you go Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, Amos, and then Isaiah would be the next major prophet that speaks for this group called the sons of the prophets um, that said that's conjecture it doesn't say there's a change of one letter there um, we have multiple situations in the bible where people are called completely different names but they're the same person um, and in this case we just don't know for sure um, unless you'd look at isaiah 1 1 as the connection point that's the only verse that would connect the two Days of Jeroboam. This narrows the dating. We're between 765 and 754 BC. So we've narrowed the dating down just by that uh, days of Jeroboam, uh, Jeroboam 2. And we'll, um, we'll do well to note that um, there was an earthquake at the end of this first verse. That narrows it down quite a bit because um, we have references to that earthquake. So uh, we should note that At the end of uh, the days of Jeroboam shows up and you have a a message from God to Israel that they're going to be judged. It's It's the first time they're getting a very clear message like this. You're going to get judged. God's made his decision. Something's going to rise that will take your place. It's interesting to note that one year later, 753B, there's a little tribe of people that found a city called Rome on the peninsula of Italy. And it happens within a year of this kind of final note of judgment from Amos that comes to the king. Again, don't know if that's a connection, but you should note geopolitically, there are other forces that start to rise when God starts to make decisions around Israel. So Rome gets founded. Uh, Amos calls himself a sheep breeder. We have a word in the Hebrew that is shepherd. It is not that word. It is the, the person who's in charge of all the shepherds the sheep breeder and sheep breeders were really important because they had to have sacrificial lambs. So the sheep breeders had in the agricultural economy, they were pretty important people. The equivalent for our society might to say, say that he, he was a rancher, right? So he, there's property that he owns. He's a well-to-do guy in a fairly strong economy, yet he still has a spiritual burden, but he's clearly a working class person. Um, Amos seven says I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. So he actually had crops that he raised too. So even more than a rancher, he was both a, a breeder of sheep and a keeper of sycamore trees, uh, which is, um, a source of food also. Um, He's going to use examples that come from average working class people. He's going to use an example of a lion, a fig press, a farm cart. And these all are part of his life that comes through in his in how the word of the Lord works through him. In other words, God speaks through people, but he also uses their experience to help do that communication. And there's an interesting merging here of God's voice and the voice of Amos to pick up on as we go through the book. Other pieces of introduction, like lots of introductions to this person, Tekoa. Is about ten miles south of Jerusalem. Uh, you could—it's a small town. It's fairly minor. If you're at the Herodian and you're looking out over the valley in front of you, that's the Tekoa Valley. So if you ever go to Israel and you go to see the Herodian, it's a beautiful place. But it's not necessarily agricultural territory. It would be more for trees and 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 herds, which is matches with what we read here. Um, the other piece here is that these are the words of the Lord concerning Israel. Tekoa's in Judah. So here's a guy from the southern kingdom that God speaks to and tells him to take a hike and go to the northern kingdom, show up at the king's palace and deliver this prophecy, this burden that he has. I don't know why God does that. Why wouldn't God raise up somebody that's in that kingdom? And part of it is starting with Ahab, they were killing off the prophets of God. They wanted nothing to do with them. There's a little more safety for the sons of the prophets in the southern kingdom. Um, And the fact that in chapter 7 he says, I'm not a son of the prophet, means Amos was familiar with this group of people. And so if Isaiah is his kid, that means God was raising up prophets from all these different places and tribes, and that's why they didn't call them Levites. They were called sons of prophets, because they're coming from everywhere. And God's just raising the Again, the worse the kings get, the more God just raises up different people to do his work a pattern, a, the nature of our God, all of that. But he asks Amos to actually take this journey. And 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 to know that before we get into the prophecies too far is just to understand the idea that, like, I don't know, but if you've hiked for like a two, three day hike, um, you're wore out at the other side of that hike. Maybe a sheep breeder would be on his feet all the time and it just wouldn't bother them as much. But there's still this idea that he has to put a lot of work in to do what God's asked him to do. He has to leave his sheep breeding to do that. So Syria turns, uh, away from them. They get all this wealth. I've already talked about that. Um, and what part of what they do with their wealth, and this is just contextual and we're going to hit this in the prophecies a little bit. One of the things that the Northern kingdom does with their wealth is they enslave the poor. And this happens when you get people with a lot of money is I can go to a poor person and say, Hey, you can buy that new ox cart. I'll loan you the money and then that person says well i need an ox cart to make a living so i'll yes i'll take that loan and then the rich people burden them with interest rates or what the the jewish people would say is usury and that usury becomes a bondage to where they're paying two three times as much for their equipment or better yet if what you really want to do is get poor people into loans that they'll never get out of so essentially they're working to pay you and usury is a way to in enslave people through financial relationships. And this is part of what the Northern Kingdom has done with their prosperity, is they've lured in a number of the people that are in the working class to be in large amounts of debt. And I don't think we should miss the idea that this is really similar to America today. Most Americans are in debt that they won't pay off for a large portion of their life. And the same thing was happening in the Northern Kingdom. You want a house, you want to, you want to get an education and sheep breeding, you're going to pay for those things. And essentially, you get a very small number of people that own everybody else. It's one of the things that God didn't like about the Northern Kingdom is what they were doing. And so slavery takes a lot of different forms at this period of history. And the most common form was this financial slavery or burden that rich people would put on poor people. Um, it's hard to pin down today this earthquake. So um, it is dateable in the face of this. If you look at Zechariah 14.5, which is 250 years after Amos. So it's a long time in the future. They still talk about the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. So we don't have a lot of earthquakes that we talk about as the earthquake. We put the participle in front of it. We talk about an earthquake or a big earthquake, but 250 years later to remember the earthquake This was a sizable event, the ones that knock down buildings and take things out, but it was something that gets recorded. What's interesting in the Middle East is there aren't a lot of earthquakes there, but when they hit, they're huge. And there's a recording at Jesus's death of an earthquake that shook the ground, and it was so bad that the temple curtain was torn in two. Like buildings were moving and shaking and ground was shifting in those kinds of things. So we have these records in the Middle East of large, huge earthquakes, and this is one of them, Um, and it's it's, near to that time of the earthquake that Amos shows up and and gives this prophecy, right? All of this fits the timeline. If you look at Josephus, there is only one earthquake that's recorded during this 100 year period, and it's on 670 BC, which fits with the timeline. So Josephus records that in, I'm sorry, 760, that there was a major earthquake that was in this area and entire cities were knocked down. The clay and brick buildings that were made shifted and it was enough to topple entire cities of worth of buildings. So a ground shaking event. Um, we're going to see that God's going to start with the Gentiles in the judgment and he, and, he, and he works his way back to Israel last in these first two chapters. Verse two. I think that's all the context. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastors of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Judgment to the nations. Very simple message. God's going to judge the nations. And he starts first with the pagan countries. He uses the image of the Lord roaring. Obviously, the Lord doesn't actually roar. um, But it's an image of a lion that's heard across the plain. What roars do is... When roars come from powerful beings like a lion, they're staggering. And the reason a lion roars is to stun its prey. You know, there's some animals that will freeze its prey. And one of the reasons that the Lord roars here is, I think, to get their attention, to get them to stop what they're doing. So the Lord roars from Zion. Think of that as like a lion just roaring across the plain. And God's will here is supposed to be, at this point, when you're against God, it's terrifying. Joel 3.16, um, the Lord is roaring there, but that roar is, there's still a refuge for God's people in Joel 3.16. Roars from Zion, another name from Jerusalem, and utters his voice from Jerusalem. Part of the sin of the northern kingdom is they didn't recognize Jerusalem as the center of worship. So this is a neat way for Amos to say the Lord actually exists and will speak from his house in Jerusalem, not from Bethel, not from uh, um Samaria or other places, not from Dan in the Northern kingdom. So a subtle points being made here that God speaks, God roars, and he speaks from this city that he has chosen. Um, Pastors pastors of the shepherds mourn uh, relevant to a sheep breeder. uh, When God has an event that happens, when he holds back the rain. The, the shepherds will mourn because it's hard for the sheep to eat and you watch a slow withering. The top of the Carmel Withering, Mount Carmel is beautiful and it is filled with green and grass. Um, it is a gorgeous hill is what we'd call it in North America. We, if you don't have snow at the top, you're not a mountain. Um, but we would call it a hill. It's, it's absolutely gorgeous. It's been two generations since Elijah killed the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel. So that's where that happened. So this idea of referencing this place, it would just be our grandparents that had this big event happen on Mount Carmel. So the reference here to Mount Carmel would instantly bring that to mind. Um, And the key to that location then of the withering that happens there is likely the withering happens because or is possibly a reference to the fire that dropped on top of Mount Carmel would have withered all the green on top of that hill. So it would look a little bald for a while until it grew back. And from this comes the judgment of the nations. That's kind of a bummer for sinners. Like this is a bad moment for them. Um, and we start in on the Northern Kingdom. Uh, we're going to see that there's six surrounding nations that go first uh, for what it's worth. Uh, here's the other thing. What, or Why did they pick this order? Uh, the only discernible sense of what order this is in is topographical. And he's moving from low country up into the hills of the northern Israel area. So he's moving up as he comes through this list. Uh, otherwise, there's, it's not necessarily particularly geographical um, when it comes to you know what country they're from, or it's not about the age of the country. So the only sense of order to these, other than that Israel goes last, is that he's coming from the low country to the high country. Verse 3, we'll get into the judgments. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they've threshed Gilead with the implements of iron, but I will send a fire into the house of Hazael, which shall devour the palaces of Ben-Hadad. And I will also break the gate, the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon. Avon, And the one who holds the scepter from Beth Eden, the people of Syria shall go captive to Kerr, says the Lord. So this is Damascus gets the first judgment. You can circle Damascus if you want to kind of sort the chapter a little bit. For threes, three transgressions of Damascus and four, this is going to be a refrain that starts each section. And it's a way to say sin upon sin, transgression on transgression. It's just a way to say like over and over and over these people have sinned. They just keep doing this. Uh, and it's not a specific number. It's not that there's three wrongs that they've done. But it's the idea of that their wrongs are complete. Um, so if you read it in the Hebrew, it's for, for complete transgressions of Damascus and the word for complete and the word for three are the same word. So it, when you say finished, complete, total, um, three is there. So these people have completely sinned and then four that, and even more. So they they've completely done wrong. Plus some is kind of the way to read that, uh, perfectly sinful and even worse, And Damascus is the capital of Syria to the north. It's interesting that he names the city and not the country. And so, again, some of these prophecies come true in the near term, which is why they record them and put them in the Bible. But some people believe they've come true in this other event here. And there's people that look at these prophecies as part of the end time, and then they make whole magazines based on guesses as to how this is going to all play out at the end of days. Um, So most of the prophecies in chapter 1 and chapter 2 most people believe have already happened. And it's part of why we record them is because we see that when God says something, it's going to happen exactly like he said it. And so when we look to the prophecies for end times, we can have some assurance that they're coming from a good source and that God knows what he's doing through his prophets because he's proven it. He's not asking us to take the validity of prophets on faith. He's shown us to, that they're faithful and worthy of our trust. So here's the thing. um <laughs> Uh, Damascus is still a city. And so some people believe that part of, part of the end time prophecy is that, uh, um, Syria will be wiped out. And this passage in particular doesn't speak of Damascus being wiped out. It says the gate bar of Damascus will break, which means it'll be conquered, but there's still a city of Damascus on the planet earth. It hasn't disappeared. Um, but I would argue like a simple reading of this, it doesn't say that Damascus will disappear in this passage. It says that the gate bar will be broke and the, and cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon, which is right around Damascus. So they're going to lose the city and the inhabitants won't get to be in the valley anymore. And so if we look back, we see Syria still is a country today too, by the way. Second Kings 8, 11 through 13. Then he set his countenance in a stare until he was ashamed and the man of God wept and Hazael said, why is my Lord weeping? And he answered, because I know the evil that you're going to do to the children of Israel. Their strongholds, you will set on fire. Their young men you will kill with the sword and you will dash their children and rip open their women with child. So Hazael said, but what is your servant, a dog that he should do this gross thing? Well, do you think I'm that horrible? This is the king of Syria saying this. And Elijah answered, the Lord has shown me that you will become king over Syria. So the king of Syria was told upon his anointing, (laughs) upon him getting that authority, you're going to do some really evil things to Israel. And and it made the prophet weep at that time. Here we are a generation later, and God's referring back to things that have already been done. And we don't have the history of Syria, but the connection here is that God knew he was going to do it. And now that he's done it, he didn't turn from that. He didn't change. And we see some references here. They have threshed Gilead, meaning there's some pretty evil things that have already been done. A thresh is a sledge of heavy cast iron that you put behind two oxen. We might call it a plow, but it's more like a rake. And the point of a sledge is that when you have perfectly new ground that hasn't been touched, you run the sledge over it, and the the purpose of it is to just break up that top two inches and take kind of the toughest part of breaking soil... And you need a super heavy piece of iron to do it because the point is to drag it and have it cut deep as possible into that soil. Too deep and the oxen can't push it. So you go as deep as you possibly can to do as much damage as you can to the soil. It's a reference here. It's an image of killing and torture and that the Syrians did as much damage as they could. They were harsh to that soil. They're trying to break it. So they're threshing people instead of ground. Gilead is east of the Jordan. It's those eastern tribes, Reuben, Gad, half-tribe of Manasseh, settled outside the promised land. And Syria has just been beating them up ever since. And so they've been taking the brunt of that. Hazael of Ben-Hadad are both the king's palace cities. And that's where the leaders' homes are. So the existing Syrians are going to be no more. And those particular places, the leadership of Syria is going to get wiped out. It also says Syria shall go captive to Kerr. That's another great clue. Kerr is located in another country called Assyria. And so the prediction is here, you're going to get beaten, not named who beats you, but the people who beat you are going to take you off as slaves and ship you up to Kerr, which is in what was growing this nation called Assyria. And then we see in 2 Kings 16.9, the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it and carried its people captive to Kerr and killed Rezin, which was the king at the time. So in 2 Kings 16.9, we see a fulfillment of this prophecy. This is the weird, you know, with Elijah and Elisha, the prophecies were kind of put right into kings at the right chronological moment. It's like they quit doing that. Because this would have been a nice prophecy to have while we were reading these chapters in Kings. Um, but God says it'll happen. In 2 Kings 16.9, it happens exactly the way Amos said it would happen. And they are actually carried off to the city. Kerr was a slave trade city. So they would take them to Kerr, and then they would ship them out to all other parts of the empire. And that's how they operated. So we know this particular prophecy has happened. Uh, God records it as a, a future confirmation, too. So this is where I'm going to give you these things just so you have the biblical literacy of how these get treated. In 1973, the primary weapon used by Syria to attack Israel, this region of Israel, were tanks. And the treads on the tanks were those old World War II style treads, which were giant metal pieces of iron that would dig into the soil, and as they would go by, these treads would just churn up the soil as they would do it. So in 1973, more tanks were used in that battle than the entirety of World War II. So you get a sense of like, they just, they didn't even come with foot soldiers. They came with all tanks into this area. And their point was to take and, and take as much of this teria, territory as possible. Um, the attack, of course, failed. Um, Israel was able to repel it. Um, but you look at these things and then you look back at these prophecies and it's like they're still threshing this region with iron. And it, and and, the, and it's changed a little bit. And, and I don't know how I feel. About, I mean, honestly, like I look at those things and I'll try to mention some of them as we go. That seems a stretch to me, right? Because nobody was carried off to Kerr. So prophecies can be met in part, in full. It feels like a little bit of guesswork to think that they're going to keep coming true again and again and again and again. Um, but there's other times where you're like, hmm, that seems to still be happening. Or there's parts of a prophecy left undone. And then God leaves it to us to see those things and see that he's still working in the world. That said, verse six, we'll get on to Gaza. Um, Thus says the Lord: For three transgressions of Gaza and four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they took captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, which shall de- devour its palaces. I will cut off the inhabitants, inhabitant of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter from Ashkelon, and I will and I will turn my hand against Ekron. And the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord. Um, so first of all, you likely have not met a Philistine lately and they have perished. So this is another one where it's, it's, it's at the end of the day, we don't have Philistines left walking the planet earth. And there may be some group in the future that says we're Philistines too, but it's not the same Philistines that were prophesied against here. Gaza is the coastal plain of the West. This is where the Philistines were. Uh, it's very low country. Um, the Philistines, though, are not mentioned initially. Gaza is mentioned initially as a region of area where these people lived. Uh, the Philistines are mentioned in verse 8. Um, so, to be taken captive, um, it's common to take things captive, but here it's that they took captives the whole captivity and then they delivered them to Edom. It was one thing to co- conquer another people and take them as workers in your kingdom. But Gaza's not even doing that. They take workers and then they sell them to other countries. This is called a slave trade. And so part of what they're being accused of here is the sin of oppression. they it, It's not the sin of cruelty, which was Damascus. You guys are just mean people. These people are like, you guys are like thoughtfully cruel to people. And then you oppress them and put them into situations of oppression. So it's a kind of a, a different Burden that's being placed by Amos, the burden, and he delivers them up to Edom is to sell people for money. This was kind of new in history. Usually you took slaves for yourself. So the idea that slaves are being taken as an economic resource and people are being sold um, is fairly new in human history at this point. And the Philistines are the first to be accused of that. Ashdod, Ashkelon, and Ekron are all Philistine cities. And there are some kind of key cities here. David gets into it with a bunch of them. Uh, And the prediction is that they're going to be taken down. Here's the fulfillment. Hezekiah specifically burns down these cities. (laughs) He fulfills this prophecy, and he may have done it knowingly, because he would have had this record when this happened. Either way, when God says it, it happens. And Hezekiah may have helped this one along. The Romans rename this territory by calling it the Latin word for Philistine. They call it Palestine. And Palestine is Latin for Philistine. We still have Palestinians. And so they call themselves that because they're from this region. I don't think Palestinians are the like the Philistines or the ancient Phoenicians that are settled. It's different. People are moved. Um, Hezekiah largely pushes these people out um, and literally moved them off. Um And, uh, you know, off this plane Um, today, the Gaza Strip is still a problem for Israel, (laughs) the same region only today. Notice the reference to a wall here. Um, Walls in this period of time were largely around cities, but this is in verse seven. I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza, not the wall of a city. And this is something that the people that study prophecies get really into this. Well, that's an interesting thing because they're not referring to a wall for a city, So they would have no idea, even the concept of building a wall large enough to cover an entire region, that would have been unheard of to them, like making a prophecy about cars, right? But today there's actually a wall around the entire region of Gaza that's been put up because the people of Gaza did not like the foundation of Israel as a nation, Um, literally there's $1.1 billion that were poured into this wall project that built a wall around this part of the world. And then you get a reference, like, I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza. Um, sounds like quite a battle. We don't know if we've seen that yet, but we do know that Hezekiah came through and burnt all these cities to the ground in this area. That said, is there more to this prophecy in the future? Is it already been taken care of by Hezekiah? This is part of becoming a prophecy nut, is you just get into this stuff and you enjoy unpacking it and connecting it with other prophecies. Here's your third one. You're just going to get a ton of this tonight. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they delivered up the the whole captivity to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, which shall devour its palaces. Largely, uh, or a very similar sin to um, what Gaza was doing. Gaza took people and then gave them to Edom. Tyre does a very similar thing. Tyre is kind of up the coast just a little bit. Um, And they delivered up the whole captivity to Eden. In other words, the whole captivity, they didn't keep any for themselves. So they're all in on this slave trade thing. Um, And they delivered them up not taking captives, just using people for gain, Uh, kind of a sin of just, again, a sin of oppression, maybe a sin of just profit off of people, uh, that you don't live that way. And the accusation adds one new element with Tyre, and that's this covenant of brotherhood. So a covenant of brotherhood is simply a promise to be at peace. We're not going to fight with you. So back in 1 Kings 9, Tyre made a treaty with David, and the treaty was we're going to be nice to you and you be nice to us. When they built Solomon's temple, they went to tire to get all their lumber. Remember to build that palace and to build the temple. So they were a trade partner with David and with Solomon. And they lived in peace with these folks. They were not driven out of the land initially and they gave their word. And I think here's the other thing with prophecy. When God says, this is bad. We learn something about God. God doesn't, we know so far, God doesn't like cruelty. And God doesn't like slave trade. I hope that's not new information. But we also see this idea that part of what's the accusation from God here is you didn't keep your word. You made a vow and you didn't keep it. And so keeping your word's important to God. And there's a vow of brotherhood here, a peace living side by side, and they simply didn't keep it. So the punishment comes. Uh, Assyria starts, they conquer this area and arguably fulfill the prophecy, but then they get hit again. Nebuchadnezzar comes through this area and actually decides to level it. So Nebuchadnezzar, Tyre puts up a little bit of a snarkiness to Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar historically, he doesn't deal with any resistance to his reign. You mouth off to him, he'll wipe out your city, your family, and go after everyone. It's like the original mafia. And so Nebuchadnezzar destroys all of Tyre. There's what's called in the archaeological record an old Tyre and new Tyre. New Tyre is on an island (laughs) off the coast, um, about half a mile off the coast. There's a little island. And Nebuchadnezzar destroys everything, and these people have to flee to a city. And so that city gets a wall around it, too. And here's what's interesting. Um... Uh, there is a, after Babylon, we go forward a couple generations, just a couple. And there's another guy called Alexander the Great that comes along. And the Greeks have developed or found this, um, how do you get fire upon a wall that's out in the middle of an ocean or a Mediterranean Sea? And so kind of hard to just bring an attack against that. This is one of the cities, the Battle of Tyre, New Tyre, was a seven-month siege where Alexander the Great simply couldn't break this stronghold off the sea, which was the last Romanian Tyre people since Babylon. And so the way Alexander beats these folks in this kind of a legendary battle, he gets his soldiers to start hauling dirt and dumping it into the sea, and he, and he fills a causeway between the mainland and the island that's one-half of a mile and, you know, the seed drops off. So every foot you're going to take is just that much more dirt. And, of course, the tire people are shooting at them as they go. And, uh, but Alexander the Great puts two towers up and pr- to protect his dirt carriers. And they just kept doing it. And they marched this causeway all the way out. And then they attacked them with a new development called Greek fire, and which was basically oil. They splashed the walls with oil and lit the city up like a candle. So even though it's on an island, the walls of the city actually burned in verse 10. You see that it happened, and they devoured the palaces. So they, the people that were there um, they were able to get out across the causeway because then they opened the gates, and the soldiers came in, and people that wanted to leave, they could. 6,000 people were killed. Um, the Greeks exercised this, uh, this new development by the Romans, their neighbors, called crucifixion. They crucified 2,000 people that were the Tyres, and then they took 30,000 of them slave. Alexander did not keep the slaves. He sold the slaves to pay for his army. So the punishment, depending on what phase of history you're looking at, there are various fulfillments. If you look at this area today, um, the Israelites have walled off this part of because of hostilities. And as of November 3rd, 2022, Lebanon this is that area and israel made a maritime agreement to start digging up natural gas out in the sea <laughs> which burns and so we have an interesting this is the one of these nations that if you're looking forward to that region today they actually have built an alliance or partnership with israel a covenant of brotherhood in order to farm and and and, and get natural gas so again Again in history, you see an agreement between the two nations to get a natural resource. This particular natural resource is very similar to what was used for Greek oil that destroyed the new city of Tyre. So, again, this just all fills in, and you can try to put it together how you please. Verse 11 Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, they're the ones that bought all these slaves, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send a fire upon Teman, which will devour the palaces of Bozrah. In all of these cases, the sending of a fire, you could argue, was the Assyrians coming through, taking out these cities. Um, And so, at some level, you could say the conquest of Assyria really fulfilled all of these in the immediate sense. Um, But the pursuing of the brother. The Edomites were the descendants of... Esau. And there is a bitterness between Jacob and Esau. That's one of the famous stories of Genesis. And so the Edomites are just kind of known as that they've always had a beef with the Israelites, Jacob's line. And there's this sin of vengeance here that they never let go of that hatred. They never just relax these old wounds. And the Lord doesn't like people that hold on to vengeance. He even says, vengeance is mine. And so this accusation he makes against the Edomites is that they just can't let go of their hate and just, they kept their wrath is the phrase that phrase that's used here. And it's dangerous for us as believers to hold on to wrath. And we see that again as a persistent thing. It's the nature of our God. He's looking for forgiveness. He's looking for friendship or what the Jews call shalom. Brothers should know how to love one another. And when brothers hate each other for long, long periods of time, that's hurtful to both of them. It's time to send a care package with some socks and shirts and get a hold of your brother and talk to him. And that's always a good thing, is to try to re- at least be the brother that tries to mend that relationship and heal it. And what a blessing, what a gift to humanity when the, when that healing can happen between two people. Teman is a, again, it's it's the it, it it's a Hebrew word for on the right, <laughs> which I don't know where they get that from. Like if you're facing the Jordan, it's kind of on the right. And maybe that's where that word Teman comes from. Uh, it could be a family name. Genesis 36, 15 uses Teman as a, or a, a clan or a tribe of the Edomites, which is likely what it is, but it's not a city. And there's no evidence of this city in the archaeological record. There's no evidence of it anywhere else in the Bible. So it's interesting that the other prophecies talk about regions and they name some cities. This one doesn't name a city. And then here's the other piece where that fits. The Edomites were nomadic people. So when nomadic people build a camp and then leave the camp, they don't leave archaeological ruins. They're Bedouins, right? So they're they're moving from place to place. So there's no mention of that here, which is just kind of a historicity piece. Bozer is a capital city if there was one. It's a shortcut to to the Fertile Crescent. So, if you want to, the Fertile Crescent's a big arch of good, well easily to travel land. But if you need the shortcut to save time, you got to go straight through Edom's territory, this desert nastiness. So, if you're going to go through there, there's one big watering hole named Basra in the middle. Um, and and in Isaiah 63 1, they're referenced as people with dyed garments and robes. There's a lot of trade going on from India and from China that would come through this area too. So Bozra, all the people were killed by the Israelites. Anything that could burn this, I'm sorry, not the Israelites, the Assyrians. Anything that could burn, the Assyrians burned. They just destroyed uh, anything that was left of that area. If there is an area called Bozra, the one we think it is, it's all just rocks. There's just nothing left of it. And the Lord says, I will not turn away. So these folks have judgment coming that God's decided on. They're not going to maintain their sovereignty, which is another way to say the palaces will be devoured. So maybe there's some Edomites left around. We know that Herod was an Edomite, right? So there's a few of them that might still be left, but there's no sovereignty. There's no such thing as a country of Edom anymore. And again, you haven't met a lot of Edomites. So today there is no Edom and there's no Edomites. They're gone, just like God said they would be. Um, He would not turn away this punishment and it would be there. So God still (laughs) hates the people uh, that would, pursue their brother perpetually. He doesn't have room for the, that kind of thing on the planet Earth. And, and it's one of the ways for God to show um, his thing. And, I, and we should also note here, the reason they do this is that they just want more territory. Um, cast a torpor, and, and his anger tore perpetually and it kept his wrath forever. But I will send a fire on team in which shall devour the palace's boss. Oh, no, the territory is the next one. I'm sorry. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of the people of Ammon and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they ripped open the women with child in Gilead that they might have enlarged their territory. That's the territory piece. How would ripping open women in Gilead help you get more territory? It's an interesting phrase and turn of phrase. But I will kinder a fire on the wall of Rabbah, and shall devour its palaces. They shall lose their country status amid the shouting of, in the day of battle and a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. Their king shall go into captivity, and he and his princes together, says the Lord. Also, um, this is also part of the nation of Jordan today, so both Edom and Amen. if you put those together, that's what we call Jordan. So east of the Jordan River at this point. Uh, it's an area that used to belong to Gad, Manisa, the half-tribe of Manasseh, and Reuben. But at this point these are the Ammonites. They've moved in. They've Those tribes have kind of disappeared from that area. Um, there's a a Deuteronomy 316 border that actually includes Gilead as part of this territory. So the reference to Gilead and what they did when they conquered Gilead is that they came through and, and did horrendous things to women especially. And this is kind of a sin against the future when you kill a kid. Like, you're sinning against the possibility of that kid's life happening. And so... The the reason you do that is really just a cruelty, a vengeance, a hatred against a people that you don't want them to continue to exist. It's genocide. So there's the killing of the child, there's the hatred of genocide, and to actually carry this forward against the Israelites is a deep hatred against God's plan. Um, And to end a life before it can live is to take something without any sacrifice. You're taking a person's life without any value. And so there's this And they, and the reason they give is to enlarge their territory. And one way to look at this is killing babies is always about expanding something for the adult. So the only reason to kill a baby is because there's some benefit for the adult that's going to happen. So, you know, you could argue at some level that, that, you know, that there's a, there's, there's, it's hard to raise a baby. It's tough to raise a baby. But when we're looking at this idea of what God hates, God hates the fact that they killed the babies of the Israelites. Israelites maybe had had it coming. He maybe allowed them to conquer the Israelites, right? Because they didn't go into the promised land like God told them to. But the killing of babies was a bit much. They didn't have to do that. They didn't have to erase these people. It's still an issue today. We still have people that kill babies for their own convenience and to enlarge their own territory or their own life. But it's essentially greed and selfishness. I don't want to give anything up, so I'm going to make the baby give it up for me. I don't want to sacrifice my time and my whatever, so I'm going to take it out on the child. It's still an issue. The issue of these people still trying to enlarge their territory. This is a region that today we might call uh, Jordan, but the enlarging of the territory into Gilead, the region of Galilee, is what we call the West Bank. It's still a problem area in Israel even today. The 1967 war, the Israelites took this region back. It's still contested territory. The Wall of Rabbah. Assyria burns it historically from the outside. They actually set the walls on fire. And so I don't think Assyria knew that they were fulfilling prophecy when they did that, but they purposefully take these walls and they set them on fire. When people tried to run, the Assyrians would hide in the smoke and the flames, and then they would pounce on them and shout and yell. And the general told them to yell as loud as possible so that it sounded like the demons that they feared were outside their walls. So they're burning inside their city and in order to get out, they run. But as they're trying to run out of the city, they have to run out of the city while the Assyrians are yelling and screaming like demons, fulfilling this prophecy to the letter. They, I will kindle a fire on the wall of Rabbah and it shall devour its palaces amid shouting in the day of battle. And so again, you get these fulfillments and they fit pretty perfectly Uh, Their king shall go into captivity. That happens to the letter. That's exactly what the Assyrians do. Uh, They turn the king into like a little slave puppy in the throne room. It's not pretty. Ammon no longer exists. They've lost their sovereignty. They're wiped out. God doesn't forget these things. A large period of time goes between Gilead being conquered and the Assyrians showing up. But God does keep a record of it. And and just a note, when we see bad things happen in the world and say, why does God let those bad things happen? Give it a few years. We don't have a record that God forgets big evils. He actually deals with them. And you get these people on the planet like Amon, and maybe they thought they had gotten away with it, this great evil they did to Israel. The other thing is, mess with Israel and you're dealing with God. Because Israel seems to like, God likes this little country called Israel. So the idea that time passed shouldn't have lured them into the sense that they, God had somehow forgotten what they did. So when God brings this prophecy against Ammon, he's saying, I remember these things, and you're now going to pay this debt, and that sin has a burden to it, and sin has a debt to be paid, and God doesn't forget those things. And to me, that seems like a weird thing, but I take some assurance that when you see great evil on the world, it's not going to be undealt with. God will deal with the people in northern Nigeria that are killing Christians right now. That will be remedied. And if you trust that your God's a good God and a just God, he will bring justice in those situations. And it'll sound a lot like what Amos is bringing to the northern kingdom. Now, at this point, if you're the king of Israel, Jeroboam 2, and Amos is telling you all these things about all of your enemies, you're thinking, I like this prophet. This is great. God's going to deal with literally every border country around Israel. And what about Judah, that southern kingdom? Um, what about Moab? You know, you got one more that's kind of off to the corner, a little further way up in those highlands. And so it, so far Amos is a pretty popular prophet with the Northern King, but I think this is like when Nathan goes to Daniel and says, what about this guy that did this horrible thing? And, and David's like, oh yeah, that's a horrible thing. And then Nathan goes, Hey David, that's you. You're the guy that did that. Uh, that's kind of what Amos is doing. I know I said Daniel, didn't I? Oh, I said David the whole time. Good. Okay, great. This is kind of what Amos is doing. He's saying, here's these judgments against all these people. When he gets, when he finally gets to Israel, he's basically going to say, you're guilty of every one of these things. You guys are really in trouble. And it's kind of that judgment where they're getting warned what God's going to do to northern Israel, right? So thus says the Lord. Uh, Amos chapter two, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, we haven't forgotten Moab and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because he has burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime, but I will send a fire upon Moab and it shall devour the palaces of Kiriath. Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting and trumpet sound interesting specifics. And I will cut off the judge from its midst and slay all its princes with him, says the Lord. So Amon's princes get carried away, and but these princes are going to get slain. We have some differences here. Uh, Moab is the Southeast neighbor, uh, not a direct border country to Israel, but a border country to Judah. So they're kind of down past the Salt Sea there. Um, the, the accusation from God here, and again, we get to see God's heart, they didn't do anything to Israel, and so there's no crime that's been done to Israel here. But there's a crime that's been done to Edom, where they took the bones of the kings and burned them and 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 turned them to lime, which is to dishonor, disrespect, uh, to take a gravestone and 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 um, deface it is a crime against the past. Kind of like killing babies is a crime against the future. This is a crime against the memory of these people, against their history. And so there's something wrong. God doesn't like when there's a judging or a dishonoring of people that have gone before you. They're not there. Just like a baby, they can't defend themselves. They're dead. So they can't stand up and say, that's why my statue belongs there. This is what I did. They're not even able to defend themselves. So there's an arrogance of thinking you can judge the past here that God doesn't like that. Um, God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, Romans 12, 19. It's not our place to judge people that have gone before us in that sense against anything other than the word of God. And apparently God didn't tell them to go deface the bones of the King of Edom. So they're doing this on their own. They're presuming that it's okay to do these things. Godly people remember those with honor. We lift up those with honors. Arrogant people don't see anything of value in the past or in anybody else. They think they know everything, but godly people have a little more humility. And maybe we'd look at history and say, well, maybe we're not in a place to judge people during that era. Maybe it was a different era and they did what they thought was best during that time. Either way, God remembers and God will deal with those that deserve judgment or vengeance. And it's not our job to do that. Fire upon Moab. There's no mention of a wall. And lo, there's no wall that was destroyed. Assyria does swoop in, and they destroy and devour everything, but there's no walls to be dealt with. They're not mentioned. Verse 3 says, I will cut off. Like Edom, the people are cut off, and Assyria does this by repopulation. They pick these people up. They move them to another part of the empire. By the time Babylon comes through, Babylon simply kills everybody that's in charge of anything, and he cuts them off literally by making the ones that he keeps into eunuchs. Frankly, he does this to Judah also. He takes all the people that are part of the palace in the throne room. We saw this at the end of Kings. He hauls them back to Israel and a number of them he makes into eunuchs so they can't breed anymore. And so this is part of you know what is happening uh, as Babylon does things slightly different. So it's interesting that in this particular prophecy, we easily can see that Moab had a partial punishment that was fulfilled with Assyria, and the whole cutting off of verse 3 was fulfilled by Babylon in a very specific way. So today, God still hates people that judge and desecrate the memory of those that have gone before us. It's still in the character of God that we shouldn't go around judging people, especially people that can't defend themselves. Um, So there's a certain wrath that comes with that, a certain expectation that we love one another. So, so far, God has indicted. There's a format to this. They've committed sin upon sin. Here's the specific indictment. Here's the crime. And here's the punishment that's going to happen for that crime. And so we've seen that format now six times, six different crimes. Um, And for, again, for Israel, this is pretty good so far. Geographically, we we keep getting closer to another country called Israel. um, But there's still two more nations to deal with. Um, So in grand total, if you include Judah, there's seven divinely perfect judgments on the nations around them, but then Israel's going to get a distinct judgment of its own, which will be the rest of the book of Amos. Easy to spot the failings of other people, uh, but this is preparing them for a consistency that all these things that they're getting judged for, Israel's going to see that God's consistent with them too. So Judah becomes the seventh judgment of Amos. Um, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away its punishment because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. Their lies lead them astray lies, which their father followed, but I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem punishment. It's easy to see the Gentiles get punished. It's not so easy to see other Israelites get punished. It's now it's getting closer to home. It's also good that God holds the Israelites to a greater standard. Notice that it says they despise the law of the Lord. That wasn't an accusation made of the Gentile nations. They didn't have the law of the Lord. They weren't held accountable to the law of the Lord. But they weren't held accountable to like truths that are written on our heart. You shouldn't sell other humans. You shouldn't rip open women. There's certain things you just don't do and you don't need God's law to know that that's wrong. And so God judges them according to what he's given them. But to despise the law of the Lord, this is a sin against heaven. The word there for despise is also to reject or refuse. So Damascus was cruel. Gaza was oppressive. Tyre was selling for profit, usury, or using humans for profit. Edom was vengeance. Ammon was greed or abortion. And Moab was arrogance. Those are the sins of man. But with Judah, you get the sins against heaven. You despised my law. You rejected my law. You threw out my law. And the the judgment there is seemingly for a less horrible behavior, but a greater punishment because you're held accountable for the revelation that you have. Romans 1 makes the same point. Well, how is it fair that God judges people that, you know, haven't? Well, he judges people according to what they've been given and what's been revealed to them. And humans across the planet know it's a pretty bad thing to kill another human. Like, you don't need God's Bible to tell you that. It's just wrong. And so there's certain laws written on our hearts that God holds people accountable to. They have not kept them, yet they've called themselves the children of God. So they're supposed to represent God's will on earth, but they don't live that way. That hurts God's name and God's reputation. That's a sin against God. And so to reject God's word... The only thing that you can accept when you reject God's word is a lie. If God's word is truth and you accept an alternative to it, you're accepting lies and you're letting those be part of your life. So when we regard and obey and worship God in truth, we're doing what he's asked. But when we do it, when we have what's expected revealed to us, we do the opposite. You're rejecting God's word. You're accepting some other lie. And a lot of times in in Christian counseling, we just got to identify what that lie is and kind of dig until you find out what that is. Their lies lead them astray. So first they despise the law of God, they don't keep his commandments, and then they're filled with lies. This is a natural progression. If you don't accept the word of God, somebody's going to fill your head with something that's not true. And then, you got, then you're living according to those lies, and to be led astray is to willfully listen to humans instead of God, because the humans say they have a better version of life to offer. So they do it. They're led astray. And here's the worst part. Lies which their fathers followed. <laughs> so you're accountable for fo- following a lie, even if the entire generation taught you that lie. Eek, that's, that's a tough standard. And part of it is they're supposed to go back to the word of God, regardless of what their fathers taught them, Grant you're supposed to go back to the word of god yourself because if your father's a screw up and teaches lies you're still accountable to the revelation god's provided you so you can't blame your parents so there's a there's a judgment coming here and we see something about the character of god that it's no excuse that they're following lies that they got from their dad their father's probably their mother's too if we're going to be fair here gender wise they're learning this from their parents doesn't matter you're still accountable to it. God holds each individual accountable to learning the word of God for themselves and going back to the source every generation. Spiritually, any law of God we ignore is going to burn us out. That's the area of our life that God will get. It's just, it's true, and it's just eternal. But I will send a fire upon Judah. Because of lies, it just burns you out. If you think you shouldn't organize your time for the Lord, time will burn you out. If you think you shouldn't organize your house and your finances, that's going to be the thing that burns you out. If you think you, if you can't draw limits with your employer as to where the boundaries are, they're going to burn you out. And all of these areas of life where you don't follow God's kind of order for your life, that's probably going to be the thing that just the enemy uses to burn you out. And that's what happens to Judah. They believe lies, it burns them out. Okay, let's get to the literal thing. But I will send a fire. Again, Assyria, we know from Kings, wipes out every city in Judah except for one, Jerusalem. So they they attack every single one of them, an image for sending fire. Literally speaking, Assyria definitely used burning, but we don't have evidence that they burned every single thing. But we do see in 2 Kings 25. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. That is, all the houses of the great he burned with fire. Talking about um, Babylon pulverizing the palaces. When they took over the southern kingdom, Babylon specifically took out the houses of all the leaders, so all that's left in Jerusalem was housing for the common folk. No leadership in Jerusalem. So, the prediction of verse 5 is that he shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. It seems that Nebuchadnezzar did that perfectly and fulfilled it. This isn't always bad. And we should note from Kings that this process wasn't something that was horrible for Israel. It was actually refining them. And fire is both a negative judgment tool, but we also see evidence in the Bible that fire is a refining thing. And if the breaking the law of God or ignoring the law of God leads us to lies, fire can burn out those lies. And it's not always bad. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3.13. Every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire. First Corinthians three is in the new Testament and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. And if any man's work abides, which he has built upon, he shall receive a reward. And if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved yet. So as by fire, here's the thing with fire. It gets rid of the impurities and it keeps the gold. So good metals, precious metals, you burn them up as hot as you can because they can handle the heat. And what goes away is all the chaff, all the nastiness, all the black stuff that sits on top of the glowing metal. And that's good. It's how God refines metals. And so this idea of this fire, its there's a judgment for Judah, but there's no promise that the people will be wiped out It's that there will be a fire upon Judah and the palaces of Jerusalem will get wiped out. People of Judah are going to thrive. They're going to do very well in Babylon, the ones that go to Babylon. The other ones, the disobedient ones, went to Egypt. We don't hear from them ever again. But the heat of Babylon sends some people packing and running, and it sends some of the leaders of Israel off to Babylon where they are going to get refined. And if you take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as an example of fire refining, they don't get burnt in the fire at all. They're gold. And you look, just think of how these prophecies play out and the imagery, but also the specifics and how this all kind of goes. Verse six, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Israel and for four. And this is where the King of Israel hearing from Amos would go, wait, what, what are you talking about? I thought all my enemies were going to, oh, no, no, no. We're here to talk about you too, Israel. And it gets worse for it. I will not turn away its punishment. This is the eighth judgment that we're going to do tonight. Last one. Seven other nations are perfectly judged. We're going to to assume that these judgments on the northern kingdom are equally valid. So this is where the king should listen up. Because the point of God warning against judgment is to do what Hezekiah did, what David did, what we see good kings do, which is to repent. The reason for the warning. It's like when I say to a kid, don't do that. That's a warning. My hope as a teacher is that they don't do that. If you put your finger in that socket, you will light up like a Christmas tree. You're going to burn. Don't put your finger in the socket. That's not prophetic. (laughs) That's just, here's what's going to happen when you do that, because I have knowledge you don't but yet you have some kids are gonna stick their finger in there anyway. The point of prophecy is for God's people to repent and turn. And we see examples where like Hezekiah does that and God says, I see what you've done, I'm gonna delay this judgment. You're not going to experience it. So don't put your finger in the fire, Israel. This is a warning. It wouldn't be fair to Edom if they had to pay the price for their sin, but God's people got special treatment and didn't have to pay the price for their sin. In fact, God's people are more responsible to pay the price for their sin because they knew the law. They knew God himself. And so there's a, a greater responsibility. God's not going to play favoritism here. Um, he wouldn't do that because he's not an unjust God. He's a perfectly just God. And a perfectly just God holds us accountable for the things we know. And this is a good reason to never come to Bible study again. But it's also a sin for You, you should still come to Bible study. But when you know what God says, now you're accountable for it. Dang, Sean, you should have told me that before I I showed up at this thing. But there is something in our heart that's like, you know what, Lord? I want to be accountable for it. Burn me in the fire. Get rid of every wicked way in me and purge it from me because that stuff is breaking me. And I want the garbage out of my life more than I want to keep it. And that's a point where God starts to refine people. God's not going to turn away the punishment, but that punishment can be a refinement or it can be a destruction depending on what you're putting in the fire. So I'm going to pause on this refrain just a little bit. This sin upon sin, Israel for, three, for perfect, for complete transgression, sin upon sin, plus another sin. There's just, it, there's no way to get out of this punishment that's coming Israel because it's just gone too far. And as we went through Kings, we saw that with each King, it just got worse and worse and worse and worse. And they just kept mixing in the garbage. So God's consistently going to measure out national level consequences here. We can take some individual principles, but I always warn about this. Be careful to take national judgments and say, this is like a personal thing for me. We know something about the nature of our God. He doesn't like people killing babies. So we know something about the nature of God that we can apply to ourselves, but to think that somehow this prophecy applies to the United States or applies to my family, we have to be careful with how we apply prophecy and where we apply prophecy. And to do it with a sober mind, I think, and understanding it. So God promises to mete out justice on individuals at the second coming of Christ. That's a promise. It's going to happen. But here we're specifically meeting out judgment on nations that we should be able to track through history in order to know that God means what he says about that second coming. So as we see individual judgment specifically prophesied, here we see national judgment specifically prophesied. By the way, we're seeing a lot of God just being done with the evil right now. When we get to Hosea, the next prophet that kind of goes with Amos, Hosea is a prophetic book that expresses how heartbroken God is over all of this. It's not like God delights in judgment in the same way that I don't delight if my kid sticks their finger in the outlet. I'm not happy that they did that. And Hosea really expresses God's brokenheartedness over all of this. Where in Amos, we're kind of like, it's the other parent. (laughs) God expresses his absolute just frustration. Like, why did you do this? Why did you stick your finger in the outlet? Because they sell righteous for silver... And the poor for a pair of sandals. This is just Northern Kingdoms get. This is the accusation, These are the indictments that God's laying out. This is what you did that really got to me. So the Northern Kingdom killed God's priests. We know that here they sell people into slavery, just like Gaza and Tear did. Um, and at least it's the rich against the the. We see that God sees that the rich of Israel are targeting the priests, but what gets them? and they sell the righteous for silver but there's an and there and the poor for a pair of sandals that's an that's that should be a pretty easy to track kind of thing he, god doesn't like when rich people abuse poor people that bothers him And I think it's interesting in the church how we've kind of divided over the issue of the poor and that people who love the poor are somehow left and people who don't care about the poor are somehow more conservative. Ridiculous. If you read the scriptures, God loves the poor and he's as upset when a righteous person gets killed as when somebody who's weak and helpless gets abused and beat up by the rich. They both upset God to the point of wrath and judgment. So don't do that. A nation that purposefully oppresses or takes advantage of the poor, God takes great issue with that. I'm going to go to the New Testament to show we're dealing with the same God. James 2, 5, 5, listen, my beloved brother. Listen, brothers and sisters, God has not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who loved him. Has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom? Hasn't God gone to the weak to make the, the, the wise look foolish? Hasn't he taken people that are normal and average and common throughout the scriptures to elevate his name as he uses them as a, as, as a tool for glory? They're not a tool to be oppressed so we can get rich. Selling of shoes. <laughs> it's interesting here that they sell the poor for a pair of sandals the idea here is that for rich people, that pair of fancy shoes is worth more than a human being to them. Now, I'd be negligent as a pastor and a teacher if I didn't point out the rising cost of shoes in the, in the first world nations. The idea of luxury footwear from high heels and fancy Prada to like the new custom Nikes that cost $15,000 or whatever, craziness. And the people that made those shoes aren't worth as much as the shoes. So again, it's hard to read the prophets right now living in the United States of America as you're going, oh, we're kind of doing that. We actually take the, li- the value of that shoe is more important in our life than the value of the people who made it over in China or Indonesia or these parts of the world we don't care about. We just care about the shoes. That's horrible. And God looks at that and he's like, you guys, Wow. Verse seven, they pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor, pant after the dust. They get excited about the things of this world. I just want to be really careful about reading this because suddenly like when all these other people, these bad Edomites, Ammonites, and all of a sudden it's like, even for me, it's it's like, ooh, that kind of hits home a little bit. Do I pant after the dust? Do I get excited about the things that are made of dust and clay? Do I have little statues that I like a lot? Do I have even ones made of metal with an engine in them? Do I put those up on a, and I value the, the, the truck or the car more than the people in my life? And do I elevate things above humans? They pant after the dust. Are there things that I just desire and want more than helping the people in my life? Dang. I hate conviction, <laughs> fanatic panting after the things of this earth, the things of the dust. Even when it's on the head of the poor, it's not just about the shoes, as I think what the, the God's saying through this prophecy. And they pervert the way of the humble. See that? Telling humble folks that sinning is a better path for life. Do we have advertisements that say getting drunk is good for you? Yeah. Yeah. Do do we do we sell to poor people? sex, drugs, rock and rolls, booze, perversions, and say these are the things that'll make your life great, you should pant after this garbage. But when we know darn well that stuff's a path of destruction and it won't help them one bit, but we can at least make a dime or two, do we sometimes sell things online that aren't really worth what we're selling them for just because we know there's suckers out there? And again, this is national accusation. I'm not saying, Alyssa, do you sell things on Etsy that aren't worth... That's not, I'm saying nationally. Do we see a marketing and an economic and commercial world that's taking advantage of poor people? Do we see credit card debt going up through the roof where people's lives can't get under control? Are we selling them casinos when we should be selling them financial responsibility? But we're entrapping the poor because they just don't know any better. In fact, let's just pull financial literacy right out of the school system so they don't even learn how to do their finances. Thirteen years of schools, nothing on home finances in most schools across this country. To pervert the way of the humble. You know what? You're not you're not making it for yourself, but you know, go do stuff that's gonna destroy your life even worse. And let's make a bunch of movies that glorify those lifestyles to convince them that there's no bad endings to this behavior and this action. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. We know that the kings of the northern kingdom started bringing female prostitutes in as they brought in these pagan religions. So a dad and his son going into the same girl, the, the same girl there in the Hebrew is the double wor- use of the word na'ara. It's an emphatic. In other words, a man and his father go into the same girl. And there's an, there's a, an emphasis here that there's a deep evil going on. You guys are just having sex with anybody. And you think that's okay, it defiles my holy name. The the word na'ara there in the Hebrew is infant adolescence. These are young prepubescent girls that would be temple prostitutes. They don't even know what's happening to them. The evil that goes on with this kind of sex trade and this kind of nastiness, in God's eyes, it will be punished. And nations won't continue that do this garbage. So if you got things where people are being hauled across borders and you're taking these slaves, but you don't use them, you just sell them to the Edomites. God's going to judge it over there, but Israel, he's going to do it when you're part of that system too. And it's going to, it, there's not going to continue forever. It's likely a reference to Ashtarte or Asha, Asheroth worship. Both of them use these kinds of prostitutes. We have lots of reference to Asheroth poles all across the book of Kings and Samuel. Like this is just part of what was going on. God says it's wrong and these people do it anyways. And here in Amos, it's like, I'm done with this. God won't continue it. And you know what? I got to tell you, as somebody who loves the Lord and loves little like girls, and I had one myself, she was now grown up into a beautiful young woman. It makes me angry when you got people doing this to little girls. It's wrong. And men and women, like we should be protecting the girls of our nation. We shouldn't let this garbage happen to them, and we shouldn't sell it to them on movies that that kind of music and lifestyle and behavior is somehow fun or good. Nonsense! It's it's destructive. They lie down by every author on clothes clothes they took and pledge pledge. There's this idea that instead of you know if you're taking loans from people, they would give you their cloak as collateral. Deuteronomy twenty four twelve. So this is part of their culture. They take that cloak that they took on loan and use it themselves. They're just supposed to put it in storage like a pawn shop. But they're taking it out, going to the temples, laying in the temples with prostitutes and using that cloak as the thing they were there. There's an imagery here, but there's a literalness to, to it too. They're taking somebody else's cloak and defiling it in this false worship and then giving it back to them, likely stained. Think of how gross this is. This is R-rated. This is just nasty. And so, and then they would drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. These, (laughs) these folks aren't even cold. They're just lukewarm. There's a passiveness to all of this, right? You're defiling God's holy name. Then you lie down on other people's clothing and you're drinking a bunch of wine, thinking everything's good. This is a big party to you. And God looks at that party and is like, I don't think so. And God isn't lukewarm about these things. He's, he's not insensitive to what's going on here. The drinking of wine, but not in covenant, and to do it in a temple. Not it, so when you're drinking wine, let's be honest, you should be doing it to honor somebody or to commensurate a new ship. You should be doing it in hospitality. You have somebody to your house and you're treating them to the best of the wine that you can get, or you should be doing it in service to people. You have people coming over from another country and you treat them to the best you have. So the idea of taking wine in the condemned house of a God, you're just getting drunk. Oh, and the last use of wine is covenant. We drink wine in communion. So there's no covenant. There's no honor. There's no hospitality. There's no service going on. You shouldn't be just sitting around drinking wine for no good reason. There's no wedding happening. Why are you drinking? So this idea that there's just a sin upon sin picture, with Israel, we actually get the picture painted. Remember the other nations? It was just like sin upon sin, and then they named one. But here, God's just like laying them out. There's a picture here. You take advantage of the poor, sexual corruption, while wearing other people's clothes, getting drunk, in false temple worship. Yeah, that's a pretty bad list, Israel. You're guilty of all of it and worse. Sin upon sin, plus some. Today we rip people off. We pant after empty stuff. We disregard the marriage bed. All the while we show up in church wearing expensive sneakers and we shake it all off with a hangover on Saturday. God doesn't miss that behavior. Woe to the church that thinks that God's, you're getting away with something just because God hasn't brought the judgment yet. Nonsense. God hates this. Israel is a nation of God and the people of God should be righteous and different. And it should go right to our heart level. And God's bringing this accusation against Israel to show us as a warning what it looks like when God deals with his people. God deals with us. It's not going to be different. It's the same God that's dealing with Israel that deals with us at a national level. America's getting in for it. And I'm not saying that's God knows who his people are and he protects his people. And I think that's an important thing to note. He looks at the righteous and he guards them and he's a shelter to them. He's our shepherd. He guides us besides still pastors, still pastors. I'll stop trying to quote things. God looks for a right society, and we can know that about God. There is a a role and a ministry in serving a community and helping to make a good community that's crime-free and orderly, where innocent people can live their lives and be joyful. Verse 9, "...yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars. And he was as strong as the oaks, yet I destroyed his fruit above." and his roots beneath also it was i who brought you up out of the land of egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the amorites in the other judgments we don't get the history lesson <laughs> but with israel god's this is why they're more accountable is that god did things for them so the amorites were uh, um, he's going way back right he reminds them of his faithfulness to them and these amorites they were scared of because they were huge And God took care of them for them. Why in the world can't they learn from this? Why can't they be grateful for what God's done? Instead of being grateful, they're trying to sneak around and they're seeing what sins they can get away with instead of saying, what sins can we get rid of? And it's it's the attitude here is just wrong. So this is why we repeat the story of the cross. We don't want to make this mistake of forgetting what God's done for us. So we take communion like once a month. So we remember what God's done for us. Part of it is verses nine and 10. God doesn't like it when we forget what he's done for us. That's a crime that he can accuse us of. So we don't do that. We want to remember what God's mighty hand has done, not just for Israel, but for us too, because we're his people too. So here's what God did for us. And so as Christians, we take communion and we remember that. Verse 11, I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. It is it not so, O you children of Israel, tell me I'm wrong that I didn't bring up people amongst you that were righteous. You've had role models. You know what righteousness looks like. When he says, I raised up, this is the idea that God's Holy Spirit has inspired and breathed life into these people to be an example for Israel. The Nazarite vow that's referenced in 11, um, Numbers chapter 6, if you want to dig into that, was a voluntary giving of your life to the service of God. The entirety of the church is in a kind of Nazarite vow. We all make a voluntary choice to give our lives over to, to the Lord, and it's not something we have to do, and it's a gift that we accept God's gift for us, and then we abstain from certain things to, to, uh, to glorify God, but we also partake in certain things to glorify God. So the Nazarites were kind of an image of that. It's a great honor to be a Nazarite. It's also an honor that God would make sure that there was always a remnant to speak for God amongst his people. And God always raises up examples so that people don't have excuse. Um, Verse 11 says the Lord, but you gave the Nazarites wine to drink. One of the things they abstained from was wine. Um, (laughs) So it's wrong to just sloppily drink wine as a drunkard and pass out from it. But it's also wrong to try to give people wine that have been abstaining from it. You're trying to lure people into sin that have decided that's not for me. And I think we have a mix in this group. We have people that drink wine and people that don't. Well, if there's people that have said, I don't want to do that, don't sit and try to lure them into doing it. Oh, you got to try this. Like, why? What's your point in doing that? If I like my cherry Coke, let me drink my cherry Coke. And commanded the prophets saying, do not prophesy. So they're trying to get good people to do things they shouldn't, but they're also trying to tell good people to not do good things. So there's just this idea that they're trying to control the righteous. And from the heart of God, that's kind of a problem. They're supposed to be good stewards, but they just keep doing these non stewardly things. So Mark 12, 4 says, again, I sent them another servant, and him they threw stones and wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully. Jesus tells a whole parable about how he kept sending servants to these wine dressers, right? These vine dressers that were taking care of his vineyard. And he kept sending people to them and they kept beating up his servants. So finally he sends his own son and they kill his son. And therefore, what will the, what will the owner of the vineyard do when he gets a hold of these servants? He's going to judge them. And so there's an idea that comes straight from the Old Testament to this one that there's a judgment coming for people that don't deal well with the righteous people God's given us. We don't want to mock those people as fanatics. If they're true and they're holy and they're good, we want to celebrate that God's put certain people in our lives and in our communities, in our nation, that are actually good, decent people. So we don't try to get them to sin. Like, that's not the solution. And we don't try to stop them from being righteous just because we don't like hearing what they have to say. So, the do not prophecy is probably a reference to Ahab where he literally sent God's prophets into hiding because he was killing them. And so we see that there's a rejection of this from God, that this behavior is worthy of national judgment. Verse 13, Behold, I'm weighed down by you. I'm going to focus on his last piece. Behold, I'm weighed down by you. Does God actually get weighed down by humanity? Not really. Almighty, all-powerful God. So, again, this is like God roaring at the beginning. He didn't actually roar, but there's clearly a metaphor going on here. Where there's something to this as a cart full of sheaves is weighed down a farm reference. So again, God's using Amos's experiences as part of how he communicates. It's an image from his work life. You get a cart that's weighed down. The wheels don't turn as well because they didn't have nice ball bearings. They had wood on wood. So if you weigh down the cart with too much weight, it, the wood starts to scrape and you can't roll those wheels very easy. So therefore flight shall perish from the swift The strong shall not strengthen his power, nor shall the mighty deliver himself. He shall not stand who handles the bow. The swift of foot shall not escape, nor will he who rides a horse deliver himself. Well, it would be the horse, but anyways. The most courageous men of might shall flee naked in that day, says the Lord. Therefore, flight shall perish. Nobody is going to get away. This idea of flight from God's judgment, it doesn't exist. You can't get away from the judgment that's coming. When God comes, no matter how fast you think you he are, he's faster than you are. And they used to say, like, you don't have to, like, if, you, if a tiger starts chasing you, you don't have to outrace the tiger. You just have to outrace the person next to you, right? But it doesn't work that there's no outrace for God. The idea of outrace evaporates. No such thing as flight when God's coming to get you, because frankly, God can beat you, the other person and the tiger the most courageous, the boldness, how, how how excited you are. It's not going to work. You're actually going to run away in your birthday suit. Like it doesn't matter how bold you are. You got nothing. You can't take it with you. So when you get to the throne of judgment, you you got these people, they're bold. They've built around themselves a financial empire. They can't take any, they're going to go naked before the throne. You got nothing but your heart when you go there and, and you know, nakedness biblically is kind of a shameful thing. The idea that the bold will be shamed um, and they'll stand there. I think, you know, one thing is too, is when you're comfortable with your self image, you're like, okay, God, if you want to see me naked, that's your problem. But you made me this way so that, you know, so it's not about the physical piece. I think the nakedness is an idea of the heart. They will find they're unable to benefit from all the areas they think they're good in. They think they're fast. They think they're swift. They think they got a bow. They think they're mighty. The areas you think you're strong in is the stuff you're not going to be strong in. It's the stuff you're going to fall in those areas. Nobody literally will escape Assyria. Israel will be wiped out. We don't even know where those tribes are today. They're the lost tribes of Israel. We know where Judah and Benjamin went. They went to Babylon, and then they came back. But we don't, these other tribes gone. And the truth of this prophecy is none of them escape Assyria. There is no getting away from Assyria because they conquer everything around the major city and then they squish the city. And uh, last thought and then we'll end for tonight. Behold I'm weighed down by you. I just want to give you a couple cross references. God God is tired of injustice. And some people are like they look at the world and it's just it's a burden. And some burdens are good and some burdens are bad. You have children, they're a good burden. You have sin, it's a bad burden. When you have children that sin, it's the worst kind of burden, right? And this idea that a burden can either be to the glory of God or it can be just a thing that weighs you down. And when God's saying, I am weighed down by you, there's, an, there's this idea that you're a burden because God loves them, but their sin, their constant sin is something that's just tough for God. And there's a patience level here. Sinners are a burden to God, and sin has a weight to it that's a a metaphorical idea here. And frankly, I think a lot of people that live in sin for a period of time, the further you get into sin, the further people will describe salvation as like a weight lifting off their shoulders. And you'll hear this in the Christian community a lot. It's like, man, I accepted Jesus, and it was like everything just, my life got lighter. And they still use this language today because there's a spiritual idea here of a burden or a weight that's on a person. But when that burden gets lifted, it's like, praise God, I just feel lighter all of a sudden. And I don't know if there's a psychological piece to that or what it is, but there's this idea that a burden is that sinners are hard to manage. So Moses says of the people of Israel, I'm not able to bear all these people alone because the burden is too heavy for me. The reality is even Moses can't handle the weight of his love for these people and the sins they keep doing. And so there's a leadership burden. Luckily, God's bigger than Moses, and God actually handles the burden. It doesn't say God's destroyed by it. It just says he's weighed down by it. He can actually lift it, and he's big enough to take this weight of sin on his shoulders, um, it's, it's hard on the sinner. I think there's a terrible weight on the sinner, too. Psalm 38:4. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. The burden of sin is too much for us. It was too much for Moses to think about others. The weight of sin is simply an unbearable weight for humanity to go through life and go before judgment with. And at the judgment seat, all will bow Some will bow out of reverence and glory to God. Some will bow because they simply can't handle the weight of their sin before the judgment seat. Some will be refined. Some will be burnt because the weight is just too heavy. Hebrews 9.26, and this is the praise God, we have another option than the weight of sin. And I honestly think this is what we have to offer the world. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but he's appeared once, for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. He literally takes the weight of the world on his shoulders and he says, I'll take that burden from you. Those who are weak and heavy laden come to me for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Burden's light because the sin's gone. And you see these images of weight and sin coming out in the prophets that Jesus uses to communicate concepts in the New Testament. So when Jesus says that, think of Amos. Oh, This is where that weighted idea comes from. So when Jesus speaks, he's almost always just putting together the Old Testament. And what comes out of him is the word of God. And it's so cool to see that come together as we study the Old Testament. He took these prophets and he used them to speak to people. We're invited to the exact same thing. If the weight of sin is a burden to God, when we give it to God and kill it on the cross, we take a weight off of God because we're not walking around pursuing sin anymore. We still sin, but we're actually pursuing righteousness. And for God, it's like, finally, I have a few of these people that aren't a burden on me. They're a joy to help get through this life. And I'll help them conquer these sins. I will help them become a righteous people, a pure and holy nation unto me because they want me to help them. And so we become something, I think when we take our sin and we dump it and we get rid of the burden of sin, when it goes on that cross, it's already been taken care of and it's no longer a burden to God either. Like he's got a human being that wants to go the right direction. Praise the Lord for that. And I love the idea that when we're, when we accept Christ in our life, we're free from the burden ourselves. And God takes it away for us. What a joy. (laughs) What a joy. Amos 1 and 2, judgment, judgment, judgment. What a joy at the end. God's doing all of this because he loves us. And discipline's hard to take if you're a child. But at the end of the day, when you grow up, you realize, oh, that discipline was good for me. I actually am kind of headed in the right direction because I was disciplined. And so when we see a godly father with godly discipline pushing us to righteousness, There's a true image of what a parent should be doing, which is guiding their kids towards righteousness. And part of that is showing them what is unrighteous, which we got a lot of tonight. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the prophets. And Lord, uh, help us to go through them. And and you know my hesitation, Lord, uh, to teach through the prophets and um, just the, the weight that that's been, but a good and holy weight. And Lord, I just pray that we're blessed by reading through the prophets. That you turn our hearts to you, and for some of us, the fire and brimstone is a motivator. For some of us, it's not. Um, and I just pray that, um, in both ways, Lord, that you want us to come to you. That you teach us your ways above our own. Uh, and Lord, we take uh, what angers you. We take that seriously. And Lord, help us to in our hearts just erase greed, covetous pride, lust. And to take those things, Lord, and turn them over to you. And Lord, I pray they burn up as you refine us with the trials of life. I pray that we can can become somebody who sheds the burden of sin um, for your glory and your honor. Amen.